Hello. Hi. Welcome to issue 18 of Scout and Birdie. Red flag. I'm Jennifer Keel. And I'm Anna Wolf. So the theme red flag came to us because red flag is is an idea that Jen and I talk about often. Mm-hmm. We sort of have this rule that when things in our life, whether it be relationships or careers or friendships, start to present red flags, uh, we bring it up with each other. Whether it's us bringing it up on our own or Jen noticing it in my life or me noticing it in Jen's life, mm-hmm. we have an obligation as best friends to bring up these red flags and to talk about them and process them together. Yeah, so we really wanted to do that with our artists and ask the question, what are the red flags in your life? What are the red flags that you are making art about? And so what we have for you today is a really unique and dynamic issue. We have artists working in mediums that we haven't featured before on Scout and Birdie, and we get to talk with a lot of them, and it was a really interesting and special issue to work on. Mm -hmm. So with that, we will take you into issue 18, Red Flag. All right. First up in the issue is Ada Chang. Ada is a wonderful storyteller and performer, and she is also the producer of a number of storytelling shows throughout Chicago, one of which is Am I Man Enough, which is another podcast. So if you like Ada's work, be sure to subscribe to Am I Man Enough and check out all of the wonderful work she produces. It is really, really wonderful. So with that, we'll take you into Ada's piece, Outburst. I didn't see my older brother's face turn red. It was sudden, an outburst. Are you that rich? I travel over the world and to the United States a lot. The tip has always been 10%. With his eyeballs almost bulging out of their sockets, DC, my older brother, sitting on one end of the couch, yelled across the room while throwing the coins onto the coffee table in the living room. His sharp words traveled through the air, passing Emma, my sister-in-law, who was sitting between us, and reached me, sitting on the other end of the couch. My mother, standing in front of the fireplace across from all three of us, shifted her gaze back and forth between us. She didn't want to have to choose sides. Not that she would choose mine anyway. My brother's words sounded like he admitted to having lost an argument to a woman and had to do something about it. I didn't even know we were arguing. I recognized the tone of exacerbation when a man loses an argument to a woman. The kind of exacerbation when you need to salvage your pride and restore your ego. The exacerbation when you can't believe you lose to someone less than you. Not in intelligence, but in status and power. Just before his outburst, I simply said, No, 
The tip for breakfast or lunch is at least fifteen percent, and the tip for dinner is twenty percent. Tim is a waiter; he can tell you. My remark set my brother off because he couldn't believe I would contradict him and therefore embarrass him in front of his wife and our mother. I never waited tables before, but I learned enough from Tim, whom I was dating at the time. Tim had been a professional waiter for decades. My family and I just returned home from having lunch with him at Phoenix, a Chinese restaurant on South Archer in Chinatown. It was the first time my family had met him, or the first time they met anyone I had ever dated in my whole life. It was special in that sense. It was also special because my family, including my brother, my mother, and my sister-in-law, just arrived two days prior from Taipei, Taiwan, my homeland, for a visit for three days. It was August twenty thirteen. We hadn't seen each other for more than a decade since I last visited the island in nineteen ninety nine. Throughout the years, I could have returned to visit him from time to time. I never did. I chose not to. After we returned home from lunch, DC asked me why I gave the cab driver a twenty percent tip for our ride to Chinatown. To be fair, we were stuck on Lakeshore Drive due to the rush hour traffic. We were going to be late if the driver didn't get us out of there. I just wanted to thank him for getting us to Chinatown on time to meet Tim. Our discussion went from tipping for cab drivers to that for waitstaffs at restaurants. Stop this! There's no need to argue over this. My sister-in-law sat up and tried to mediate between us. By then, my brother and I were both sitting on the edge of the couch, bracing for confrontation. I was ready to respond. I had all the facts and arguments in my head. But then I paused. I remember why I chose not to return home, not even for a short visit. Born as the youngest one in a family and a woman in a culture that often devalued members of my gender, I realized very early on that I didn't have much say in my family or in my society as a girl and woman. Even before my father passed away, my brother already learned to see himself as the man in the house. A culturally sanctioned hereditary role that came with the responsibility to care for family members, as well as the power and authority to control and dominate them. He took the liberty to discipline me without a request from my parents. They didn't need to. He knew he could do so simply because he was the oldest and was a boy a man. He used to slap me across my face when we had disagreements or when he couldn't win arguments. He resorted to physical force when verbal assaults were insufficient to subdue me. Of course, my brother wasn't born a monster. He learned to slap me from our mother, who used to find ingenious ways to discipline us that bordered on child abuse. Looking back. He never had to control his temper either when interacting with my mother and I, both members of a lesser gender and thus lesser in status and power. He learned that from our father. 
When interacting with members of lesser gender or status and power, you don't need to consider how they feel or what they think. You do as you wish. Growing up as a boy and man, my brother is socialized to forget that the other half has feelings and knows how to think. He never has to learn how to graciously lose arguments to them, or to me. At that moment of his outburst, I see my mother unwilling to take sides, even when she knows I'm right and he's wrong. Unwilling because even as a mother, she knows her place in relation to him as a man. I also see my own father staring right back at me. My brother is the exact mirror image of my father, not in his facial features, his lips, or his nose, but in his outburst. My father's unpredictable temper was enough to terrorize my family, particularly my brother and my mother. We would tiptoe around him with fear, holding our breath, waiting for him to explode at the simplest thing. He didn't need to hit us. The fear was adequate to keep us in line. I used to say that he had a terrible temper. Now I say he is abusive, verbally and emotionally, if not physically. It took me decades to name my family dynamics as domestic violence. After my father died, my brother assumed the role as the patriarch in the family, as a dutiful older son would do. When I returned to do fieldwork in 1999, I witnessed how both my mother and my sister-in-law tiptoed around him, worried that his temper might flare up at the spur of the moment. One time, my brother yelled at Emma at a restaurant publicly simply because she disagreed with him. Without considering how it might have made her feel in front of us, for a second, I thought I was watching my own parents. And now there he is, sitting in my apartment, having an outburst simply because I disagree with him. My brother has turned into the same man who used to terrorize him. As much as my brother was terrified of my father, he also respected and adored him. While we both were victims growing up in an abusive household, he never did question the authority my father had assumed, knowing that he himself would soon claim it and use it to his own advantage. I stopped myself right there. I felt sorrow for my brother or terror for my mother and my sister-in-law. For my whole life, I had tried hard to work my way out of a cycle of violence because I saw myself inherit some part of it from my father. I never wanted to subject another human being to that dynamics. I was glad I was not my father, but I ached for my brother, who didn't know how to find his way out yet, or didn't know he had turned into someone else so familiar. At least to me. Or perhaps to my mother as well. That was the last time I saw him. And that was the last time I wanted to see him. Or them.
All right, next up in the issue is Swell Shark. And since the members of Swell Shark, Henry and Shaylin, recently relocated to Georgia, we wanted you to get a chance to hear from them. So they recorded this message for all of you. Hi, we're Henry and Shaylin from the band Swell Shark, and we're here to talk about our new single, Wolves, and how it relates to this month's theme of Red Flag. To us, a red flag is a sign of impending misfortune, destruction, or disappointment. And when we wrote the lyrics for Wolves last fall, we faced some grave questions and big decisions after experiencing repeated red flags in our own lives. When this song was originally created, we were not where we wanted to be emotionally or geographically. Both of us are from Chicago and had lived there our entire lives. Over the summer, we went on our first tour with the band and saw much more of the country than we ever had before. It was exhilarating and life-changing, but when we returned home, we didn't quite feel at ease. We couldn't figure out why being back felt like such a defeat instead of a victory, and the anxiety that this created strongly influenced the tone of Wolves. The lyrics, which Shailen improvised while recording, felt to me like a personal confession of some of the darker feelings she experienced during her time in Chicago. A big breakthrough for the song came when we heard isolated vocal tracks from popular Beach Boys tunes. While their songs as a whole are famously teeming with joy and beachy summer fun, we were surprised by how tense and eerie Brian Wilson's complex vocal melodies were when played alone. We quickly fell in love with this vocal style and how it conveyed both beauty and anxiety simultaneously, so we implemented our own version of the method in Wolves to create the various background harmonies that you'll eventually hear. For the music, I added some acoustic instrumentation inspired by folk artists like Van Morrison and Fleet Foxes. These slowly transition into big drums and distorted guitar to match the growing tension of the vocals. In the end, Wolf should sound like an intimate conversation from the mind of someone dealing with red flags in their own life. A special thanks to Scout and Birdie for letting us take part in this month's issue, and we hope that you enjoy our new single, Wolves. Forces awaken lies Ivan's one, two, three. Say it with me now, out of my head, out of my head, out of my head, out of my head, out.
Next up in the issue, we have Matt Beard. And Matt is a wonderful writer and poet. And in this piece, he shares some annotated poems. And the annotations are not featured in the recording, so make sure to go on to scoutandbirdie.com to read those annotations along with his poetry. Yeah, it really adds an extra layer of depth to this piece. So please enjoy Zodiac of the Forest. This is excerpted from the annotated poems of John McEnroe by Clarence Washington, a novel by Matt Beard. It's a book set in a reality where an esteemed tennis player, John McEnroe, lost his first major tennis tournament instead of winning it. Thereafter, McEnroe gave up tennis for poetry. This turned out to be the most consequential career change in 20th century history. Year of the Deadly Bees In the year of the deadly bees, when much of what you thought was true has vanished, the world will become a small, dark mirror. Your twisted features unrecognizable, you will run to the carnival funhouse and attempt to find a you you thought you knew. Where the carousel stood, you will find only a charred pit, your maternal cousins bumping into each other, bodies turning to ash. Their fallen limbs will make a tower. You will have two choices. One, attempt to run so fast that your spirit leaves your body. Two, climb the tower of limbs and jump off. Year of the Undulating Manta Ray In the year of the undulating manta ray, fish will feed from oil fields at the bottom of the ocean. Their insides will be stained with black sludge. The fish will groan and bloat. So too the sharks, the whales, the dolphins, the humans, all bloating full of viscous oil. Oil leaking out of pores, pouring out of ears, between teeth, oil seeping out of genitals. Babies will be born more oil than baby. Their cries will be sludge, each tear a drop of precious oil. The children will be mined for their valuable bounty, their black gold. They will be used to fuel the humming engines of God. Year of the eyesore crabs. The eyesore crabs will be incredibly ugly. It will hurt you to look at them. You will look at them and want to die. Their shells will remind you of children being thrown before oncoming trains. Their beady crab eyes will blink in the darkness, and you will wish you had never been born. But the crabs will not care. They will not even notice. They are crabs. This is the lesson they are there to teach you. Whether you are horrible, and you will feel you are, whether your friends avoid you altogether out of unadulterated hate, you must continue anyway, unblinking, unfettered as the eyesore crabs. Year of the ferret slipping in sand. There are two ways of dealing with a pile of slippery sand that will form outside your front door. You can either choose to act like it does not exist jumping farther and farther from your door to the curb. Or, you can accept it as a reality and go out the back gate. The ferrets that begin scratching your trailer's siding will not be friendly. Their teeth will be like human teeth, only they will be ferretier. Their mission will be to devour your internal organs without you waking up. If they succeed, you will not know. You will still be sleeping. Only instead of sleeping, you will be dead. It is a fine distinction like trying to detect artificial sweetener in a soft drink using only your fingers.
All right, next up in the digital issue is Catherine Woods. And you'll remember Catherine from our Over the Moon issue. And we are really excited to have her back with some of her visual art. In Catherine's series, Blood Magic, she features several women menstruating and incorporates actual menstrual blood in the pieces. Yeah, it is really interesting to see the way Catherine uses her art to play with this idea of the taboo and break down this stigma of female bodies and our bodily functions. So be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check out that series. Yeah, it's very bold work and it's definitely worth going online to check out. Mm -hmm. And now we're here with Ethan Burke, who is here to talk about his short film, The Fable of the Sun and the Moon. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you for being here with us, Ethan. Yo, it's a pleasure, guys. <laughs> I know Ethan from... Wizard Lizards? Wizard Lizards, exactly, <laughs> yes. Um, for some context, that was the name that we called ourselves um, when we were interning together back at the Annoyance Theater. Yeah, I basically lived there. Yeah, we were just getting like into shenanigans and running shows and making up names for hypothetical improv teams that we would create with each other one day. Mm -hmm. And now you're here on Scout and Birdie. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your short film and what the idea behind it was. So I really wanted to play and like personify um, the sun and the moon. Thinking about it now, I realize it may have been because my mom always had suns and moons like all over our house and she's a hoarder. So like there's a lot. And I really like this idea of like duality of like yin and yang of like one feeding into another, creating like kind of like a positive feedback loop, which, you know, a lot of us find ourselves in consistently drug addicts, find themselves in it, alcoholics, um, people with severe anxiety, uh, find themselves in it. I personally have found myself in it for like months and then finally got out of it. Thank you, God. Anyway, um, <laughs> So it, it's like the, I really wanted to personify that and like show kind of that like loop that happened throughout this one, this person's day um, and kind of like an absurdist tone. Do you feel like your background in comedy is what informs like the absurdist tone or do you feel like this is like going a little bit away from your more like sketch based background? Oh, absolutely. Going away from the sketch based background. Um, <clears throat> I'm, like, really obsessed with trying to create something different. Because, um, like, for me as a creator, I feel like either, A, you can be the best at what everyone else is doing, or you can be the only one who's doing something else. <laughs> and that's kind of, like, how I've been approaching a lot of my art and a lot of my um, writing and uh, creating uh, recently. Uh, yeah. Just trying to throw an aesthetic onto something, which is why you know the whole short film's a shadow play, or a shadow puppet play, um, mm -hmm. using like shadow puppet masks and silhouettes of people to be able to like, you know, give it like a weird aesthetic, absurdist tone. Yeah, we were talking before about your process in writing and how it's been perfected or is currently in the process of being yeah. perfected and. I think it's really interesting what you were saying. So can you elaborate on your yeah, absolutely. detailed process? <laughs> so like, um, I'm, I'm not a very well put together person. So I had to like create kind of like an insanely anal and crazy, um, writing routine to be able to like 
uh, stabilize myself and make sure I actually do the work. Uh, it's really based off of um, like flow state and flow state writing. Flow state is like this idea of that first hour that you sit down, you're so focused and you're so like effective for a long time and then you snap out of it and you're like, why can't I get myself back to um, that state and to that momentum I was having? Um, so I started becoming like um, really obsessed with that and I read this book called Catching Fire which is about flow state. And so I based my entire writing routine off of like maximizing like how well uh, you can and how effective you can be when you're creating. So I start off with, <laughs> I start off with um, meditation for about 10 minutes. Um, and then I do, then I smoke a lot of weed. Um, <laughs> a, I don't recommend ever smoking a indica and then trying to create uh, always a sativa, heavy sativa. Um, I forget what it's called. It's the same one Seth Rogen smokes. Jack's, Jack White. Jack Herrera? Yeah, I think something like that. Um, okay, Pothead. <laughs> okay, Pothead. I think, I think that is it. It's a very famous strain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's it. I think that is it. I don't know. I found that in Tools of Titan by Tim Ferriss. Mm. Um, and then after smoking, I do a, like, kind of like um, I listen to music and move and dance to it. Um, it's just I go on a walk and I dance and I don't give a fuck who sees me. It's ridiculous because I go hard. I go hard like you're drunk at three in the morning. <laughs> like it's crazy. It, like, yeah, drunk three in the morning at big shitties. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's how hard yeah. I go. Um, <laughs> to kind of like get myself out of this like heady state that I'm going to be in. Um, and yeah, and then I write for f exactly 51 minutes. I use a timer. Um, and then I take a break for 17 minutes and then I do it over and over again until I have about like, I write for about four to five hours. Um, that was a process I perfected, uh, last January when I tried to write for six hours a day and it did not work. It was based off some articles that I read um, of, like, that 51 minutes with a 17-minute break is, like, perfect. Because um, 17 minutes gives you enough time to, like, get actually, like, get your head out of whatever you were doing. Because that's the most important part of a break in a creative process, at least within the writing routine I've created. It's, like, during those 17 minutes, your job is to focus on literally anything else. Gotta gotta be meditative because it'll creep back in, and you gotta just put, be kind to it and push it aside and center yourself again. Do you have a specific activity that has been helpful for you during a break, like getting up or I, getting high and dancing? Can I just say that? Just more of that. There's multiple smoking <laughs> and getting high sessions in each writing day. Right. Well, I mean, it also like for me the. Um, like doing yeah doing that Walt Whitman you know right uh, drunk edit sober is like really true. I just like with me and like my limitations um, with my anxiety and like the pressure that I put onto my work. Being in an altered state helps to um, not put that pressure on. Mm -hmm. And then when you're in like an actual like editing phase and editing strife uh, during those 17 minutes it's like I highly recommend listening to an audiobook that helps me because an audiobook cements me within that thought because I'm trying to like really learn um especially when it's like a more dense book rather than something like you know just mm -hmm. 
Harry Potter or something like that, something dense to like something more intentional. Do you mean like like self help books? Yeah, I listen to it. Yeah, <laughs> I listen to it. Love self help books. Yo, because I'm broken as hell. <laughs> it's true. I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna fix me. I'm gonna be fixed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no. So I mean, like, there's some. I mean, there's a lot of like awful self help books out there, but there's also like a lot of really good ones, like. Um, uh, subtle art of not giving a fuck. Um, how to unfuck yourself. Um, <laughs> I really didn't like you're a badass. Um, but uh, power of habits also a really good one. It's just like find the holes of your life, and there's probably a book about it. So why not <laughs> read it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the best things I've gotten out of um self help stuff is just like, you know life is pain but if your pain means something you can do it if your pain doesn't mean anything then you can't like it just doesn't work that's important and i think that's also kind of what this uh short film is about is it's about this idea of like being caught into this feedback loop that we've generated within society. You know, originally it was like the American dream and like all these like symbols you had to get to be quote unquote happy. And then you would torture yourself for not having those things. And now we've moved from that to more of um, like a Facebook, like social media feedback loop where, you know, all we're seeing is highlight reels of other people. And then at night torturing ourselves for, you know, not, being on an island right now <laughs> um or you know not having a cooler job and yeah all that kind of stuff it's so it's evolved and I think that's a lot of like what the short film is about too and it's a lot of the self-help stuff and it's very apparent that it's about me um <laughs> yeah so make sure you go on to scoutandbirdie.com and check out the video the fable of the sun and the moon Thank you so much for being here with us, Ethan. Oh my God, thank you guys so much. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right, next up in the issue is Emily Nickfar. Emily is a wonderful friend of ours who was previously featured in our Messy and Be Kind Rewind issues. We're so excited to have Emily back with her piece, About That One Time I Dated Marshall Applewhite. you know how you hear about cults like Heaven's Gate and wonder how the fuck that shit happens? It's because of leaders like Marshall Applewhite. That man was a manipulative sociopath. It's not until you don't die of drinking the Kool-Aid do you realize you were duped. Well, after dating my own Marshall Applewhite, I kind of understand the desire to drink some poison and fly away onto Comet Hale Bop. For those of you who haven't yet been brainwashed by the cult of sociopathic lovers, these are the red flags you could be falling for one. Number one, sociopaths are very charming. Marshall has this goofy, gap-toothed smile that he flashes when he's teasing me. He drives me to and picks me up from the airport. 
Marshall, thanks so much for the rides. That is so nice of you. Nah, I'm shitty just like everyone else. My girlfriend thinks I'm a sociopath. This dude is telling me he is crazy, but all I can think is, why isn't Marshall my boyfriend? Marshall, why are you doing this? Why are you cheating on your girlfriend with me? I am drawn to you because of your mind. You are intelligent and funny. You ask the right questions and probably know things about me she doesn't because she doesn't ask. I didn't realize I was missing that intelligent, deep conversation until I met you. Number two. Sociopaths are more intense than others and often have very intense eyes. Marshall has pretty brown eyes and big black glasses. He makes direct eye contact. He really sees me for who I am. After like 10 minutes of direct eye contact, <laughs> Marshall, why are you looking at me like that? I just like to look at beautiful things. Also, things with Marshall went from 0 to 60 in one night. One second we are just friends, the next he's making out with me and telling me he has liked me for a long time, that he has thought about being inside me a lot before, and that he wants me to meet his family. He's playing me a voicemail from his mother. Marshall, honey, I miss you. Give me a call, okay? All right, I love you. Number three, sociopaths behave irresponsibly or very impulsively. Marshall texts me a selfie of him wearing a new $700 motorcycle jacket. He doesn't even ride a motorcycle. He drives a Mercury Mountaineer that needs a new transmission. Marshall, why did you kiss me like that? I mean, you still have a girlfriend. It was that kind of passionate kiss that makes you see through time and space and you realize you have waited for it all your life. Well, I don't know. I didn't really think about it. Number four, sociopaths have disregard for societal norms. Marshall is covered in tattoos and has gauged ears. The hand tattoos he has look super sexy while he runs them all over my body. I don't want to work for a company that cares about visible tattoos. I don't care about a normal job. As for his girlfriend, do you think you'll marry her? Well, I guess. I mean, we've been together three years. I don't want to deal with someone new, although I don't believe in monogamy. We are mammals, and mammals don't mate for life. Number five, sociopaths have oversized egos. I didn't used to have a lot of self-esteem until I learned that I have a larger-than-average dick. Average penis size is 5 inches, and when I'm erect, I'm 7.5 inches. It's not just his large dick that alerts me to his large ego. It's his sexy texts. Marshall sends me a sext that makes me stop in my tracks in the Tums aisle at Target and remember that I am also there for batteries. I want to put you up against the wall, kiss your neck with my hands on your hips, and slide myself inside you from behind. Whoa. Number six. Sociopaths can stay eerily calm in scary or dangerous situations. After sleeping with Marshall for the third time, I am driving home from work crying hysterically in my car listening to Call Your Girlfriend by Robin. 
but Marshall seems okay. What will happen if you get caught? Well, she'll probably just bite my dick off. At the company holiday party, he sends me a text from the elevator while standing next to her. You look very nice tonight. I just want you to know that. Number seven, sociopaths have a lack of remorse or shame. I know this is wrong, but it feels right. I ask Marshall if he feels bad. Meh, my conscience is not around right now. Number eight, sociopaths are good at lying and manipulative behavior. Marshall, are you cheating on me? Is there something between you and Emily? What? Of course not. You are overreacting. I was at John's playing Magic the Gathering while you were at your AA meeting. You know that. Are you serious? Fine. I'll just go to Emily's birthday party alone. Number nine. Sociopaths have a lack of empathy and don't apologize. It's my 26th birthday and Marshall and I are having sex for the first time. Well, my first time. He is inside me and he says, don't fall in love with me. After the fifth time we have sex, Marshall, I get the feeling lately that I am just one last fling before you get married. Well, yeah, if I get married, you will be the last other girl I have sex with. Number 10. Sociopaths live by the pleasure principle. It's all about fun. Emily, this feels good. Go with it. We are in the beginning, the fun part of the relationship. Let's just enjoy it. I'm acting on my feelings and how this feels good. I had fun. Emily, this isn't fun, this conversation between us. It isn't fun, and it isn't making me want to choose you. Hmm. That purple-poisoned Kool-Aid looks so satisfying and delicious, huh? Like the rest of those in Heaven's Gate cult, you are promised a spot in the spacecraft to reach the level above human. In the Other Woman Secret Lover Society cult, you are promised an orgasm and a boyfriend, and you will maybe get one of those things. Okay, in reality, just think for yourself, and if your gut is waving a red flag no matter the size, trust it. It will always lead you right. All right, we're here with Grace McLeod, who is sharing with us a monologue from her play 2007. Welcome, Grace. Hi. Thank you for being here, Grace. Thanks for having me. So I know Grace from a residency that we did together this past year at the Greenhouse Theater, and we worked on writing plays together and supported each other, and Grace is such a talented playwright. Mm -hmm. We're really excited to have you on. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about 2007. Uh, So 2007 uh, is a play inspired by, of course, Britney Spears and the timeline of that year for her. And I just wanted to write a play inspired loosely on, on her story, but then also around, actually around the same time, my mom got breast cancer and shaved her head. And I remember very specifically 
feeling that like the two most important people in my life were suddenly bald. And so, and, you know, it was at this time where I was sort of wondering, you know, like, what does it mean to be quote unquote crazy? What does it mean to have a meltdown? What does it mean to be branded like a crazy lady? Um, Because these were all, you know, phrases that weren't being thrown around at the time. And all of this has sort of just been inside me for quite some time um, since 2007. So finally, I decided to write uh, a play about all of these things that would take Britney Spears and sort of fictionalize her uh, a bit and create this character called the pop star who sort of infiltrates the chemo dreams of this woman and uh, the fantasies of her 16-year-old daughter and the nightmares of the 16-year-old daughter's best friend. And they all sort of cohere and come apart and come together in this play that's really about all the pressures of, of being a woman and sort of the impossibility of being a woman and also the impossibility of being famous and being a celebrity. Um, and I think those two things have a lot in common. So... Um, so yeah, so this is the play. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we're so excited to share this with everyone at home. So with that, we'll take you into this monologue from 2007. And the stage directions will be read by Grace and the role of the pop star will be read by Natalie Santoro. Enjoy. Enjoy. The pop star sits in a salon chair. She's facing a mirror in the position of the audience. When she talks, she watches herself intently. The hairdresser stands behind her, too intimidated to move or speak. The shouts and camera flashes of the paparazzi echo from outside. Adjacent to the pop star, Lucy, Eileen, and Allison sit in waiting area chairs. They each read magazines with the pop star's face on the cover. They keep their eyes glued to their magazines and flip the pages in unison. I don't write any of my own songs. And like, I know nobody does, but there are people who do. Christina, Madonna, but usually I just get the lyrics and say, okay. When I was 17, I thought it was really cool that people were asking my opinion at all. It was kind of crazy. Do you like this? Can you do this? Can you say this? I said, okay, okay, okay. I loved it. After my first album came out, I started to get fan letters. Most of them were just photos that I had to sign and send back. But I remember the first real letter I ever got. It was from this dude in Montana. I remember I was so excited. I mean, I was 17. Like, someone wrote to me? They took time to write me a letter. And he started off being like, your music is so important to me. You're so talented. You're such a good dancer. You're such a good singer. You're amazing. You're so perfect. You're so beautiful. You're so blonde. You're my everything. I worship you. I am so obsessed with you. I want to kidnap you. I want to bring you to my basement so I can have you all to myself. I'm going to tie you up and fuck you. And if you try to escape, I'll kill you. I'll fucking kill you. I'll fucking shoot you in your head. (laughs) Okay. Okay, okay. I started getting extra security at my meet and greets, and my mom said to me, well, honey, you're so pretty. Nobody wants to kill ugly people. 
I, um, I have this idea for a song. It might be totally stupid, but last week I took my boys to lunch in Beverly Hills and I kept trying to get them to eat something healthy or better than like all that crap their dad feeds them. And they kept saying, no, mommy, no, no. And the fucking paparazzi were there taking all these photos, yelling at us to turn to look at them. And the boys were just screaming, no, 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 no. At the top of their lungs. I mean, like they're one and two. They know maybe 20 words. And everyone is staring at me like I'm hitting them or worse. And the cameras keep flashing. They won't leave us alone. Hey, boys, look over here. Look over here, okay? Okay? So I keep saying it. Keep saying it. Keep going. Keep. No. No. No, no, no! Before the hairdresser can respond, she impulsively grabs a pair of clippers. No. Buzz. Lucy, Eileen, and Allison look up. Blackout. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to stay connected with Scout and Birdie in between issues, go on to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and follow and like us. Be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check out Catherine Wood's series, Blood Magic, and also check out Ethan Burke's short film, The Fable of the Sun and the Moon. You can also learn more about each of our artists there and find out where to keep up with each of them. If you would like to be in a future issue of Scout and Birdie, go on to scoutandbirdie.com, click on the submission tab, and send us your stuff. We'll see you next time with issue 19, Lost and Found. I'm Anna Wolf, And I'm Jennifer Keel. And we're going to play you out with another song by Swell Shark called Cranes. Bye! Bye! I spread out a thousand little pictures of you I have a pen and a piece of paper But I can't draw you small enough to fit into this locket You forgot to get me something for my birthday And the way the bartender at work looks at me scares me I'll come the only thing that we can say is how was your day? It was okay, it starts to rain I put my head out of the window Looking at the drooping pinks and technicolor greens I'd like to say I was looking for a sign But really I just wanted some fresh air And a little alone time And suddenly there are two cranes Blue hairs more precisely I watched their floppy landings The top of my fair tapa tree They came at the same time But were sitting apart What did it mean? together with a little star it was so beautiful and strange to see a pair when the side of one was already so rare so rare and it made me want to ask you dear with that thought crammed i missed you without that constant fear are you my other crane are you my other